Thanks for joining Doxa as we study the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a testimony of Jesus' closest friend and confidant. He spent years walking, talking, and watching the Son of God be the light of the world. John captures three years that fundamentally changed the course of history. For more information, service times, or to find spiritual formation guides, please visit www.doxa-church.com or find us in your favorite app store by searching Doxa Church Eastside. Our scripture today is from John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and they manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Autumn, and good morning, Doxa family. My name is Tim Patton. I am one of the elders here, and I serve on the staff team as well. Uh, I am not uh, our regular or normal preacher here. We get to sit under the teaching and of our lead teaching, Pastor Jeff, that you heard earlier if you're new. Uh, but we do share in this and we give opportunities for people who are looking to grow in their communication of God's word. And so that's kind of why I'm up here today and grateful for that opportunity for sure. Um, we are going to be continuing in our book, on, in our series on the book of John. But I want to start with another part, another quote from a teacher in a different part of the Bible. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, the teacher says, better is an end of a thing than its beginning. The best comes last, and the last is yet to come. Have you found that to be true, learned that to be true in your life? That's kind of the question I want us to be wrestling with and have in the back of our minds this morning. We've been in John, like I said, we're continuing in that series, and we've learned a few things so far. We're in week four right now. In our first week, John was really clear that Jesus was the word who came, made flesh that would come to dwell among us, that Jesus is the son of God. In week two, John wanted to make sure we understood that we were to follow Jesus and not John, that Jesus was the greater and he was the lesser, and so we should be his disciples, and so then last week, we looked at how John is inviting us to be disciples of Jesus, that we would be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and get to do the things that Jesus did. And so we're continuing in that. And I love the saying, we've been kind of saying this over and over again as we look at John, that it is, it is safe, enough for, safe enough for a child to splash around in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And we're going to see that that's true again today. Because our narrative today is some deep water. There, it is packed with symbolism and depth. There's a lot in here for us. Because John's going to take a turn. He's not going to just be talking about who Jesus is, 
which he has been so far, he's going to now start telling us about what Jesus has done. And we're going to see today his first public display, a sign that would communicate his identity as the Son of God, because that's John's point. He wants us to know who Jesus is. And these signs, D.A. Carson says, he defines them for us a helpful way, are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to a deeper reality that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. I like that definition. Let's, let's look at that again. So these are, they point beyond themselves to deeper realities. In other words, there's more here than what meets the eye. And they are perceived with eyes of faith. In other words, not everyone's going to see them. It is going to be through the lens of faith that we can see the deeper realities of God that he gives us in his word. And that faith is actually a gift of God, that we get that faith to see those things through him. And so that is what we are entering into and participating today. I love the song at the beginning, the new song that we just kicked off. It said and reminds us that God far exceeds our expectations. And that when we're in awe of him, we tend to, as it says in the, the, that, the song, stop all negotiations with the God of all creation. You're bigger than I thought you were. And that's my hope this morning. My hope today is that we would see Jesus' glory, that we would see him and that he would surpass our expectations, that we would be in awe of him, that whatever negotiations we've been wrestling with and bringing into the, to the room today, our wrestles with God, that we would actually bring them to him and just stop, just let it end so that we can actually receive from him that we might have faith in him. Let's pray for that and get into our time together. Jesus, I thank you that you did give us your word that you revealed yourself to us through your word. I pray that we would see you today. Jesus, open our eyes. Open your word to us. Let us perceive the deeper realities of God and move in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that you would come to dwell with us. Thank you that you would give us your word. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to jump into our text this morning. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We're going to be in John chapter 2. You've already heard it read once, but we're going to kind of go through it uh, section by section here. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll hand one to you and uh, turn to John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding feast. Sorry. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. That's a big deal. You may not realize that that was a big deal. That was a really big deal to run out of wine in the middle of your wedding feast. These wedding feasts would go on for seven days. To run out in the middle is humiliating for the host and it's kind of insulting to the guests. See, this, this moment of supply of the provision of the wine and the festivities for the feast was meant to be a part of how the bridegroom and his family are communicating to the bride and her family, hey, you're welcome here. We're gonna provide for you. We're gonna bless you. This is what it means to be one of us. Welcome in. Enjoy the abundance of what we have. And so when this, when this bridegroom actually runs out, What's he communicating? I mean, it makes you wonder, not just the wedding, but the marriage is in some trouble. If we're not able to provide and think through how the wife, that wife's family, that bride's family is going, did we make the wrong choice here? Like, what have we done? 
This isn't good. It's a big deal to run out of supplies for the wedding feast. And so it's a shameful thing that probably Mary was noticing. She was likely somehow connected, maybe a relative of the groom's family at some level responsible for paying attention to how the hospitality and festivity elements are going. So she notices this thing that's gone wrong, probably wants to spare them the shame of not having provided what they should do for the wedding. But that's not all that's going on here. Here is one of the deeper realities that I think John is saying. I think John is saying something about Israel, that Israel had become a dried up wedding party that they had lost their connection to the vine, that they were now barren and dried up, that they had ran out of wine. There was nothing left in the bottle. And Jesus is gonna come to this party and he is going to bring refreshment. He's going to bring abundant life. He is going to fill the party with not just good, but the best. And that is a good news for them because Jesus is gonna come and redeem their ruined party. Maybe that's you. Maybe you dragged yourself in here today and you're exhausted. Maybe that full week at school with all the drama was just too much or the unrealistic expectations at the office have just got you down or the, you have a thousand too many to-dos around the house. It's just not working out and you're, you barely made it this morning. Well, first of all, I'm glad you did. I'm glad that you're here with us. And I hope that you'll get some refreshment and encouragement because there is good news for you today, for the tired, burned out, exhausted people of God. Jesus comes and brings refreshment to us. He sees your need and he can do something about it. And that makes him very unique, very different from any other help that you might seek to get. And I love this picture of Jesus in the everyday. John gives us this glimpse into Jesus' life that Jesus was the kind of guy that got invited to weddings and parties. He would later be called, it was meant to actually insult him, that he would be this friend of sinners, a a drunkard and a glutton, and, and the religious elite wanted to distance themselves, insult him for hanging out with all these people and carrying on and having fun, eating and drinking with people that they rejected. But Jesus didn't seem to mind that. He didn't seem to mind. He's talked about himself being a friend of sinners. He actually wanted to be with the people, not necessarily doing all the same things that they did, but being with them, being named and numbered among them as somebody who he would be acquaintances with. And I like that about Jesus. I get kind of worried about somebody who doesn't ever want to have a good time, who doesn't ever want to show up. But Jesus was the kind of person that people wanted to be around. He was the kind of person that they wanted to invite to their wedding that they would want to have at their dinner party. That's who Jesus is. And I like that about him. So we're looking at just kind of an average sort of -of run-of-the-mill family wedding today. But not really. There's going to be something quite special in it. Let's keep going in our text. In verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, before our PC 21st century minds kind of blow up on Jesus for talking to his mom that way, okay? I'm gonna hit time out and give the text a chance to kind of unpack itself a little bit and see what's happening. Let me start by what's not happening here, okay? Jesus is not dissing his mom. 
Okay, he is not disrespecting his mom. The word here is gune. It's translated woman, wife, bride, female woman. And all the commentators just kind of universally agree that there's no, there's no disrespect intended here. One clarifies that there's not even a tinge of contempt in Jesus' words. He had no intention of disrespecting his mom. This is not Jesus holding a Coors Light can and talking down to his mom in public. This is not that moment, okay? Jesus is actually going to use that same word, gune, in a very different and very tender moment where he's on the cross, when he's on the cross, he's going to talk to her the same way and use that same word, gune, and he's going to entrust her care to the disciple that he loves, to John, who wrote this book. And that's a very tender moment. And so that same language, that same word is in both of those spaces. So don't discount Jesus, don't write him off, and don't misunderstand him. He loves his mom. He has respect for her. He's not disrespecting her, but he is trying to do a few things in this, I think. So let's talk about what we think Jesus was doing. And I think we need to pay attention to first, how does John refer to his mother? And interestingly enough, John's title for Mary almost throughout the entire book is the mother of Jesus. And the point there is that Mary is getting her identity from Jesus, not Jesus getting his identity from Mary. And when we get that mixed up, things get out of whack. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus, it tells the story of how Jesus gets rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. So he's in this synagogue, he's preaching and teaching, he's wowing them and amazing them with what he knows, and they can't get it. They can't hang in there. They can't, they don't, they can't handle him because they're only looking at him through the lens of what they thought they understood. In Mark 6, it's 6, 3, it says their response to him after this teaching, is, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. See, they try to give Jesus his identity based on what they know about him. And when we try to give Jesus his identity based on our limited scope and perspective, we'll do the same thing. We'll reject him and he'll offend us. Instead, what we should do and what John wants us to do is to get our identity from him. He set this up for us in chapter one, where he says in verse one, chapter one, verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's our true identity. We are the children of God. I am a son of God. You are the sons and daughters of God. And that is an identity worth living out of. That is an identity worth moving forward with in faith. And that is a good thing. So we want to hold on to our true identity. So that's, so that's part of what John's wanting us to see is that Jesus has got an identity that is firm and solid. So maybe a more helpful translation here of this gune is, is like ma'am, you know, like a Southern yes ma'am, no ma'am moment. Not, not mama, not, not that intimate personal space. There was some intentional distancing happening. So what's he doing there? Well, he is intentionally, respectfully distancing himself from his mother in this moment because he wants Mary to know that there's no grandfather clause to get into the kingdom of God. He is rebuking Mary at some level for attempting to leverage any family position that she has with him to direct his life and ministry. See, Jesus is under a totally different authority structure, that of his heavenly father. So there is no one, no flesh and blood, not even his own mother that gets to direct his life and ministry. He is completely of his own. And so Jesus would say, 
that those who believe in him are his family. He says that in Matthew. He talks about redefining family for us. And so it is only through your own personal relationship with Jesus that you are made right with the Father through him. So maybe you're here and you're a student or a member of a family that's Christian, or you go to church, your family goes to church, and that's kind of, in your mind, that's the card you're going to play when you get to the end of your life. And I just want to ask you to stop. Stop right there. That's not going to work. That card won't play. That ticket won't ride. It is only through your own personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus would say that... um, He's inviting us every time to be able to find our identity in him and to be able to trust in his work in our life. And it's only through that relationship that we have with him that we're going to enjoy it. So I sincerely hope, if that's you, that you're going to see this miracle that he works today, that you're going to be in awe of him and that you're going to grow in your faith of him. He goes on in his response. He says, my hour has not come. And when he says that, the hour in John, all throughout that, the hour, the hour, the hour has not come until the hour has arrived. And what Jesus is talking about is his hour on the cross where he would actually give his life for us. And so in that regard, no, this isn't the hour of the cross, but this is the hour of when his glory first shows up and really manifests itself in a public display. And so in that regard, the countdown clock to the cross starts running. And it's going to run as he shows his glory and as people begin to believe in him, he is going to increasingly and continually take us and build up to this moment where he is going to display the ultimate glory on the cross. So Mary says, and that's going to take a step of faith for us to see. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever he asks of you. And when she says that, she's taking responsibility for the situation. She's acknowledging that there's something broken here, but she can't actually fix the problem, right? So do whatever he says, because I can't do it, and we're going to need help. And I happen to know, Mary happens to know, right, that this is a very special baby boy. She's thinking back to how she got pregnant and how the birth came about and all that stuff. We talked about it in Advent, right? This is a special person. We've got this special problem. I wonder if this is a moment. So she's curious and she's inviting, she's asking Jesus to do something about it. But it comes back to what can Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Well, John tells us. Let's keep going in the text. In verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You have kept the good wine until now. And that's just, at face value, that is just an amazing miracle, right? Water into wine. That is amazing. That does not happen very often or ever. And so we should be impressed with just that, right? Water into wine. Incredible. But let's also go deeper and look into this sign, what John is talking about and what is happening here. See, that water that was in those Uh, vessels was in ceremonial washing vessels. So they're going to take that water and they're going to use it to clean on the outside. They're going to use it to wash their hands before they eat. 
was they had to wash their hands a certain way and a certain number of times before they could eat, before something would get defiled or they would be unholy. And so they are using and interacting with this water as a means for cleansing themselves to be able to be the people of God, to be able to display what God is like, the holiness. And John wants us to see that this water is gonna get turned into wine. Jesus turns that water into wine, which symbolizes his blood, which cleans from the inside, okay? His blood cleans from the inside. Now, how do we get there? That's a good question and an important part. Later in the story, okay, fast forward in the story. The night that he was betrayed, while they were celebrating the Passover meal together, Jesus is gonna lift up the cup of redemption. That was a ceremonial cup full of wine that they drank during this meal together. And he's going to take that cup and he's going to hold the wine that's in it and he's going to say, take this. this, drink this wine. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is connecting his blood to the wine that they are taking in the Passover meal. That is what we do. He's setting up the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate every single week when we take communion together. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And so we are participating and interacting with this wine, this cup that reminds us of the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus that is a covenant for us for all of time. See, what man used to clean the outside, Jesus transforms into a sign that points us to see his sacrifice on the cross, being the only thing that can actually cleanse us from the inside out. It actually gets after the real problem that we have. So whatever we've been using to clean ourselves up, right? Whether it's positive, the latest fad in positive thinking or, you know, a new diet or exercise plan or achieving your New Year's goals or Christian versions of this or like, I read my Bible a certain number of times this week and I made it to this many church gatherings and I am practicing these types of spiritual disciplines. And those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. They just won't clean a soul, Right? They're good things, but they won't clean a soul. We need something else. Only Jesus' sacrifice can do that. And so John wants us to see and is going to now point us towards glory and belief. Doxa and belief. Okay, verse 11. Let's read that. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Doxa, when we see that word, glory, our ears need to perk up as a church. It's connected to our name. That's that word glory. That's the doxa, okay? Now, okay, Greek scholars, it's doxa. Doesn't sound as cool, so we call it doxa. I'm okay with that. Hope you are too. We can argue about Greek stuff later if you want. But the doxa should perk our ears up because it's in our name. And when Jesus manifested his doxa among us, he is intending for us to know and remember our story. See, doxa isn't supposed to be just some heady, theological, distant term. It's got real substance to it. It's wine and water in this story, and it's the miracles of discipleship that we experience all around us here as the family of God. It's those stories of marriages that are getting reconciled. It's the professions of faith through baptism where people go under the water and come up. It's when we take the meal each week together in our communities, as our communities gather throughout the week to love each other like family and to be a display of what God is like in the world. It's all the art that surrounds us. It's the songs that we sing. It's, It's the doxa of God, the doxa of Jesus. Manifested means to make known. Right? So it's to make known the glory. So are we experiencing this manifested doxa 
And are we making that doxa known? Does the world know doxa? That's a question for us, doxa family. Because that's what we're here for. And unfortunately, as the Big C Church, we have often mixed and messed this up, frankly. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wanna take a moment to honestly apologize and acknowledge that we as Christians have not always, though we were meant to be a display people, though we are supposed to show the world what our God is like, we screw that up all the time. We've been unhelpful to you. And I'm sorry for that. Have you ever been misled by a sign? got a couple of funny signs here actually that will help point it. Maybe you've been like this and you're coming to the church and you're like, okay, how do I get involved? Yeah, go that way. Got it. Or uh, where, where do I go next? I'm heading this way, right? And sometimes we just stand back and we're like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm not, nope, I'm not here to help you. And honestly, it's, it's a funny way to look at it, but that is true. When we fail to give Jesus the glory for our story and make him the hero, when we forget about the blessings and attribute those things to works that we've done instead of gifts from him, or when we fail to remember how he has cared for us and lack the courage that he intends for us to have as we face the next trial, thinking about what he's already done in our lives, we're not being good display people. And for that, if you're here again and not a Christian, I'm sorry, we are sorry for that. It's not our intent. Now, for us that are trying to display and fail regularly at that, there's hope and good news for us too. Because Jesus is the only real, clear, and perfect sign. He's the only one that you can actually study and examine and see his life down to the most intimate detail. And you're only gonna see perfection. And you're only gonna see beauty. You're only gonna see goodness. You're only gonna be more amazed. And so we say, look at him. Yeah, look at us, we're meant to point, but we're pointing to him. And that's what we want to be as a display people. And hopefully that is a part of our uh, witness as a people. And so Jesus performs this sign. He performs this sign to manifest his glory so that uh, people would put their faith in him. And speaking of putting their faith in him, I like this part of the story. I want to call this out and invite even more of us to kind of hang in there on the discussion. Because in in, uh, verse two, it says that Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And then in verse 11, it says, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I want us to see that difference, that John's gonna still call them the disciples though they hadn't believed in him yet. And he wants us to see that discipleship is a journey and a process. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're a skeptic, maybe you're interested in Christianity or the church or Jesus, but you got a lot of questions, a lot of big questions. Good, hang out with us. Stick around. We want to talk that stuff through with you. We all believe we're on a journey. Jesus is not done with any of us yet. And he is most certainly not done with me. Because here's my witness. My witness is that Jesus redeemed my ruined party. I want to tell you a little bit about a story of how very true that is. So we were, uh, in the first few years of starting Doxa, we had been soaking in this vision of gospel saturation, and we'd begun to embody some of the ministry philosophy around a missional community, that we would be people that are a display people, loving people like family, and showing uh, the world what God is like. And coincidentally, for our family, we just moved into a brand new spacious home in a brand new development with all new neighbors. Now, my wife, Sarah, and I, we love to host, and we are sevens on the Enneagram scale, which you don't have to know what that means, other than basically we're who God sends to go make merriment wherever we go. It's 
part of our, our God-given duty, and we carry that cross with such joy. Um, but honestly, we really do love to host and to throw parties, and it's in my DNA. My folks are known for throwing a killer St. Patrick's Day party, okay? We got an Irish Catholic background, and it's like Christmas, Easter, St. Patrick's Day, somewhere in there. You know, it's a big deal there. And uh, so my folks are still known for throwing one of the best and only uh, St. Patrick's Day back where they are. We come out here to the Pacific Northwest and realize there's not a lot of that going on. I don't see a lot of that part. So we saw this opportunity, not just to celebrate, but to have a more missionally focused party. And so we create the space now that we have it in this new home, and we decide that we're going to throw our first inaugural St. Patrick's Day party. And when two sevens get together to throw a big party, things can get out of control quickly, right? And so let's start with the guest list. We had just moved into a new neighborhood, 76 homes built. We made 76 invitations. We knocked on 76 doors and we invited 76 homes, which that's not to say how many people are in those homes. That's just the building. So we had no idea who all was coming, but we wanted to invite the whole neighborhood, right? This was before like the no soliciting glue had dried. So we had the chance in good faith to like actually meet people and get our community together at its very beginning moments and maybe see something very unique and different start. So it starts with that, and you can see where this is starting to head maybe. Um, but we didn't even know how many people were gonna come, so we needed help. So we got our MC involved, our missional community. We got our uh, friends from Doxa involved, and they're helping to set things up and make food and do decorations and uh, learn an Irish jig or two, because if you're coming to a patent St. Patrick's Day party, you're gonna do a jig or two, okay? That's just the thing. I'm up 4 a.m. day of. Like, it's an early morning for me because I'm gonna get that uh, corned beef brisket just right. And it's gonna take a long time, if you know anything about cooking that. And so I've got it marinating and slow cooking and getting ready for this party. And then there's the, 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 the cabbage calculation. Now, if you know anything about cooking cabbage and serving it to large groups of people, you need to think through a few things as a host. Because you, you don't want your brand new guests to walk in your home and just be welcomed by the smell of a big fart hitting their face, honestly, okay? But at the same time, nobody wants to eat cold cabbage. So you've got this tension you have to work out, and we just entered right into that moment. So we did. We went all out, and we had just a great time preparing. We spent the equivalent of our entire month's grocery budget on that one party. Yeah, because it was worth it and super fun. And the kids will be fine. You know, they can eat other stuff, I'm sure. But honestly, this wasn't just about having a big party, St. Patrick's Day party. This was our first attempt to have a doxa, missional-minded party. And we wanted to look for intentional ways for our MC and our friends at doxa to have gospel conversations with our new neighbors. Because again, we've been thinking about gospel saturation and we wondered, like, what if in our brand new community, the gospel just started to get shared and spread and embodied right away? And what if this community could be different from every other community in the Northwest that is closed off and cold and not entirely warm, right? What if that could be? So we were wanting to actually do that, and that was, our, that was the heart behind the party. So you're looking for ways to share the gospel. Now, with St. Patrick's Day, this is so easy because the whole point of the holiday is to honor a man who gave his life that the gospel would spread throughout Ireland, right? He goes back to the people who oppressed him and he shares the gospel with them and he trains them in the Trinity and he trains them in the ways of Jesus and that's his whole life. So what do we do? We just took quotes from 
St. Patrick, we took trivia questions and embedded them into some of our games throughout the night, and we made it so that it was really easy for these gospel conversations to get queued up. And it was, it was all great. So I'm, I'm up again. I'm up at 4 a.m., going all day, busting my tail, getting ready. Guests start arriving at 6. And oh my goodness, they started arriving. Like, they come in, we fill the front room. And we fill the dining room. And we fill the kitchen. And we fill the living room. And now we've spilled out into the back porch, right? It was standing room only, a very full experience and big moment. And it was, it was all on. And I have my host hat on. So my, my seven is like kicked into high gear. I wanted to make, I'm meeting all these people for the first time. I'm wanting to make connections for them. I want them to feel at home. I want to make sure that they've got, you know, food and drink and that they're welcome. And they know people and maybe Doxa could meet them and, oh, this will be great. And I'm just overdrive, okay? I was so excited for this thing. And I'm walking around and I couldn't manage to carry a plate, but I did manage to carry a cup, Okay. And not too long into the day, I realized I hadn't really eaten anything. And I'd been up since 4 a.m. And I started, again, having a drink, alcohol. And it was not long before I had consumed more liquid calories than solid ones. And if you've ever been there before, that is not a good equation. That is not how those are supposed to add up. And so very honestly, to be just very honest with you, two hours in to this party, that I spent two months planning for, I'm sick. I feel horrible. Like, I'm going to throw up sick. I need a friend to ultimately notice that, like, I'm not doing well and kind of escort me discreetly upstairs and let me spend the rest of the night in my room. I missed out on the party, the whole thing. I was mortified by that. It was so humiliating. It's just the worst outcome of all the things I wanted to see God do at that party. That was not on the list. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've done that equation wrong before. Or maybe there is another aspect of your life that comes to mind that you've experienced, that kind of shame that just, it just makes you want to crawl into yourself, into a ball, and never come out. I hope you can kind of be there with me in that moment and think about that for yourself. That's where I was. I didn't want to come out. I didn't want to face anything. It was bad. I was super embarrassed. The next morning I wake up, I couldn't bear to face that day. I cried out to God. That's where I started. God, please, cover me. Cover my shame. Have mercy on me. I'm sorry. I've been a fool. I need your help. And sitting in that space with God and lingering in that moment with him, he begins to give me a little bit of courage, says, face the day, face it. I'm with you, I'm for you, I love you. I get enough of that truth to move forward. And so I text the elders that were at that party with me and I begin to just confess my fear, my guilt, my shame, my sin, my foolishness. And I'm waiting for a response and I'm preparing myself for the worst because I'm waiting for like, I'm waiting for rebuke. I'm waiting for a request for resignation. I'm waiting for a termination. 
I'm waiting to be told I defamed the gospel. I, I'm just assuming I ruined everything and now I'm gonna lose my job, my house, my ministry, my church family. It's all done. I just ruined the whole thing. That was where I was at. And I'm waiting in that moment for a response and I'm wondering what is gonna happen. Do you, do you know what I got that morning? I got told the gospel and I got extended grace. I got reminded of the truth that is in Jesus Christ. That what we actually believe is that it's not about what I've done, good or in this case, bad, that makes me right with Jesus. That it isn't about whether I have performed well or behaved well or done everything I could have rightly, it's that Jesus did for me. It's that there is hope for all of us, for our brokenness, for our shame, for our sin, that Jesus extends to us freely. He lovingly invites us into it. Now, it cost him everything to do that. It cost him his life to do that. It's not a cheap, light thing. But he does it because he loves us. He loves me. And he loves you. And he would be willing to give his life for us to cover our shame so that he could extend us forgiveness so that we could be welcomed in to the family of God. Now, honestly, I just cringe at the memory of that party still. But I cling to the gospel that I heard that morning. That's my hope. That's my hope for all the stuff, whether it's a big public mess or it's something quiet in your own heart. That's our hope, that Jesus actually gave his life for our sins and that he invites us to come to him to confess and to trust him with our mess because he's enough for it. He redeems our ruined party. He redeemed my ruined party. See, Jesus doesn't just make bad things good. He makes good things the best. Jesus is the better everything, right? In this story, Jesus is the better bridegroom who never runs out for his bride. He's the better servant who takes responsibility to redeem the ruined party. He's the better wine, which doesn't just satisfy our thirst, but quenches and satisfies the wrath of God for sin. He is the better feast, the better wedding feast, which we are invited to take and eat and have our fill. He's the better cleanse, who doesn't just wash the outside, but he cleanses us from the inside out. And he is the better supply. He's not just enough. He's 120 gallons filled to the brim of abundant life, of refreshment for you. And he's the better master of the feast, who doesn't just say something to the groom, but actually speaks a better word over the whole wedding party saying, blessed are you who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that is the good news that we all get to enjoy this morning. I'm here to bear witness that Jesus redeemed my ruined party. And I'm here to tell you that he can and wants to redeem yours, whatever that looks like for you. Whatever aspect of shame that is holding you back, Jesus can and wants to redeem that for you this morning. Do you believe that, Docs of Family? Do you want that? Because you have to actually want that. Okay, cool. So we want that. That's good. Because we're here to see his glory and put our faith in him. That's the whole point of what we're, where we're heading. So I want to bring us back and end with uh, how we started. The teacher's words out of Ecclesiastes. That better is the end of a thing than its beginning. 
that the best comes last and the last is yet to come. Lang in his uh, commentary on John points this out. I thought this was super helpful for this particular text. He says, sin gives its best first. Think about that. Sin gives its best first, pleasure, riches, honor, etc., and its worst last, sorrow, poverty, disgrace, ruin. Christ, on the contrary, gives his followers first the cross, the race, the battle, but last, the crown, the rest, and the glory. So we got to ask ourselves that question. Where have we satisfied for the lesser first to quench our thirst? What aspect, what rich, what riches, what honor, what thing have we allowed to look better than, uh, to us than what Christ is actually offering? Because the best of Christ comes last. So I want to ask you, what aspect of, what do you need to hang in there on, right? What race do you need to run? What battle do you need to fight? What cross do you need to carry to persevere in the faith with Jesus this week? Because he wants you to do that with him. The best comes last and the last is yet to come. The story doesn't go garden, cross, tomb, and scene, okay? The story goes garden, cross, tomb, wedding feast, wedding feast of the lamb where he's going to have this party, an eternal party in heaven that all who have put their faith in Jesus are invited to and get to enjoy all of the abundance, all of the love, all of the grace, all of the goodness of God forever. It's a very good thing. It's the best party to be invited to. And Jesus made it possible for all of us because he has redeemed our ruined realities along the way. See, he turned water into wine. God turns our brokenness into redemption through Jesus. Jesus turns our everyday ruined realities and makes them redemption stories. With Jesus, the best comes last and the last is yet to come. So put your hope in that this morning, family. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you would come and dwell among us. We thank you that you see our need, that we are not too disgraceful for you, that you would be willing to be counted among us, enter into our worlds, see our ruined realities, and take them on yourself. At great eternal cost, your own life. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us be able to face whatever shame is knocking at the door, whatever humiliating memory or story or thing that is holding us back from walking in faith this morning, would you bring it to mind? Jesus, would you speak your truth over it right now that you are the better. You are the better in that moment that redeems that ruined reality. We want to put our hope in faith increasingly into you. Help us to do that, Jesus, as we respond to your gospel. Amen.